This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Alec Ryrie is professor of the history of Christianity in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University in Durham, Durham University in the United Kingdom. Professor Ryrie began his studies at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, followed by a year at the University of St. Andrews in their Department of Reformation Studies. He then earned his Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford University under the tutelage of renowned historian Darmaid McCulloch. In addition to his teaching, Professor Ryrie's academic publishing focuses on the English Reformation and the emotional history of religion. His newest book, Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt, chronicles the history of atheism from the Middle Ages to the modern times and is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Ryrie, if if I were to think of the uh, standard account of the rise of doubt in the English-speaking world and the uh, modern age uh, generously defined— then I, I think I would have to start with the Enlightenment and the standard account and follow through uh, various forms of skepticism and doubt uh, from, uh, from Hume to, uh, uh, well, uh, Matthew Arnold and uh, uh, Leonard Wolfe and uh, the Victorian uh, uh, doubt that uh, exploded into a form of agnosticism by the 19th century and more formalized atheism in the 20th century you don't so much dismiss that as uh, tell us there's an entirely different story. Is that right? That's right. I, uh, the reason I, I, I wrote the, the, the book I've written is that I wasn't persuaded by that, that story, um, which seemed to me to kind of miss the, 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 the really crucial episode in this, which is, is what happens before that. Where do these, these first instincts for, for doubt come from. And one of the reasons I, I don't buy it is that that's too intellectual. That, I, I think, falls to the idea that people are, are really persuaded by the arguments that the, the philosophers are, are making. Whereas I think most of us you know, tend to, to intuit, to feel what the truth is that makes sense to us is, and we then come up with the philosophy that we need. We, we develop the rationalizations that we, we, that we need to develop it. I, it's, it's been said for, for years, I think most people accept this, that believers embrace their faith not just out of a kind of cold rationality that you've kind of sat down with all the reasons to for for and against Christianity, you weighed them up, and you've you've decided that one side is more probable than the other. A, a decision of faith isn't like that. It's something that's made with your with your whole self. Um, all I wanted to suggest in this book is that that's true of unbelief as well. That people often find themselves falling away from faith or or, or, or reaching to a new set of convictions not because they've been persuaded by reading a philosopher, but because of, of something that's more intuitive, more visceral. They then go out and find the philosophy that they need to justify it. But the bit that really interests me is what it is that first tugs people away from faith in the first place. I can remember reading uh, many years ago John Updike's novel, uh, In the Beauty of the Lilies, and Updike had a pretty good handle on uh, the emotional conditions of, uh, uh, you might say, upper-class uh, uh, white culture in the United States in the 20th century. He, he, he wrote, however, about a minister in the early 20th century. He named uh, Pastor Clarence Wilmot in Manhattan, and he spoke of Wilmot losing his faith. And uh, it, it all happened one morning when Wilmot was simply preparing a message, and as uh, Updike said, his faith fell from him as uh, particles falling to the ground. Now, th- that, that immediately caught my attention, and, and of course, then Updike novelistically kind of takes us in, into the man's inner life. But that was actually one of the first times I, as a theologian, uh, a generation or so ago, reading that material, thought, you know, I, I've, I've talked to people like that, and I think Updike is onto something. Uh, there was something intuitive and emotional that burst out into this uh, 
this unbelief. The unbelief didn't mug them like a philosophical mugger. No, although I think for some of them, the, the, it, the experience can, can have been almost as, as violent as that. Um, I, one of the characters who I, who I talk about in, 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 in the book is John Bunyan, who, of course, doesn't end his life as an unbeliever. But in, in, in his you know, this, this extraordinary autobiography he writes, Grace Abounding, talks about this period of a year when he is 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 consciously wrestling with with doubts that that threaten to overwhelm him and he describes the way he struggles against those doubts as being like a baby who's struggling against being kidnapped Um, in other words he can make a lot of noise uh, but he can't do anything about it he feels you know helpless to, to to resist these these thoughts that are overwhelming him with with the arguments that he's trying to to mount um, and I end up telling the stories of quite a lot of people um, in in that sort of era. So before we're supposed to think that there was unbelief, who were wrestling with doubts of that kind, and they mostly find that trying to deploy philosophical or rational arguments against these um, these temptations is is pretty ineffective. Um, even if those are those are arguments of whose truth they're absolutely committed, um, that doesn't mean that you can persuade your your feeling and your intuition to to to, to do what your reason says they should. It does seem that there's something of a of a mixed uh, picture here. And uh, by the way, I. I accept your criticism of what you cite as the intellectualist fallacy, that uh, this is just all about uh, uh, an intellectual pilgrimage. But uh, it does have something to do with a mixture, it would seem to me, of the intellectual, the emotional, the intuitional. I wrote a book years ago in response to the so-called new atheists, and uh, there are are a lot of reasons to bring them up in your book, but mostly at the end, I guess. But one one of the things about them is is that uh, they were all emotionally involved in uh, in pushing atheism as the only possible uh, stance uh, philosophy of life uh, that that is uh, imaginable uh, amongst sophisticated wise people in the modern age. So they say, but uh, but they never really talked about any experience that led them to this other than intellectual. Uh, there, there, there's almost no emotional engagement, but yet their arguments come out emotionally. It, it's very striking when you when you read, um, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens and so forth. You know, how passionate they are in, in 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 terms of their in terms of their writing, um, the anger um, that that very often emerges from from what they're saying, um, and sometimes. You know, there, there, there's there's a kind of a sense of beauty as well. You you can you can see that you know that they've they've got almost a kind of rapturous vision that they're seeing, which they're wanting to to convey. There's, you know, there's something very evangelical about it in some ways. Um, not that I think the news that they're trying to communicate is especially good. Um, and they haven't gotten very far with it, by the way. Uh, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And you know, angry and aggressive atheism has has a has a terrible track record um, in terms of actually winning people over. Um, I think those those books are are much more preaching to the choir um, than they are actually about about winning over winning over converts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the there's there's real resistance. Um, amongst the, the the core disciples of that movement, to to talk about um, emotional or intuitive reasons for, for for making the sort of move that they're doing, I think partly because the idea of of rationality of reason with a capital R yes. um, as you know as something almost to be worshipped uh, has become so important to the the, the, the self image. Of of that particular subgroup of, of of atheism, I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of other atheists um, find themselves you know, withdrawing from from that kind of thing. And and you know, there's there's, yes. there's a lot of distaste for 
the um, clear-eyed certainties of that movement as if all these truths were simply self-evident. I think you write very perceptively at the end of your book that the uh, four horsemen, as they're known, of the uh, of the new atheism, quote, are f- much better at cheering up atheists than at persuading believers. And uh, yeah. I, I think that's true. I want to go back to the beginning of your argument, uh, because the, the word emotion is, uh, well, it's even in the, the, the subhead uh, of, of your title, and uh, I think that has to be defined. So I think a certain person listening to this conversation might be tempted to think of emotions as uh, as only a part of the story you want to tell. When you use the word emotion, you're talking about a much bigger story than a smile or a cry. You're talking about something far deeper. I I, I am, and you know, I apologize for for using a, a word that's that, that's that's got so much ambiguity to it. Um, I, th- what I really don't want to do is suggest that emotion and reason are kind of separate from or opposite to each other. Um, I, I would see our emotional nature really as a, as a, as a shorthand for talking about the, the wholeness of our yes. humanity, um, that our emotions are not irrational. They include re- reason. Um, they have their own reason. Um, Pascal is one of the, the, the philosophers who I think is really important to this account. You know, famously says the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. And that, I think that's, that's to be taken very literally, um, that our, our emotional responses have reasons for them. But those are reasons which run deeper and have, have have more profound consequences and resonances for our lives than the sort of self-conscious calculating that yes. is what we tend to call rationality. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to suggest that we need to think about unbelief as well as belief in those sorts of, of whole person terms, in the, 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 yes. the story of your life that gets you to that point, rather than simply the reasons that, 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 that persuade you. As a theologian, uh, I enthusiastically affirm that. And I think, first of all, if you go back to classical philosophy, uh, the, uh, the classical Greek philosophers gave a lot of attention to the unity of, uh, of thought and uh, force uh, and uh, anger and uh, an entire range of emotion. And uh, and then, of course, in a biblical theology, especially in the Old Testament, even the uh, the organs, uh, the physical organs that are referenced, whether it be the heart uh, or or the stomach, uh, for that matter, uh, it, it's clear that there is a, there's a deep emotional. That's the best word I can find to use for an emotional part of belief in God and uh, and worship of God and the struggling with the big questions of truth. It's it is intellectual. But we were not made uh, merely intellectual. By the way, a, a very wise church historian I read years ago said that uh, we should remember that believers are not creeds with legs. Uh, there, there's more to it than that. Uh, yeah, that's the, the, I, I very, very much want to, uh, to agree with that, that the kind of belief that is, is, is rooted in the intellect, so, you know, I mean, this is the, the, the belief that St. James says the devils have in tremble. Um, it's 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 not something that's that's rooted rooted in yourself. Um, the uh, w- one of my particular bugbears uh, is the the idea that the head and the heart are opposite to each other. Um, this is an idea which, as far as I can tell, first gets dream- dreamt up in the 17th century, and that we've become absolutely stuck with. And I've, I've, I'm I'm really opposed to this. This this notion that that's kind of so often used as a shorthand for the idea um, that reason and emotion are are, are, you know, are are forces facing each other down. Whereas if we're to have any kind of of human unity, we need to recognise that that head and heart are are both aspects of ourselves that are woven in together with one another, and neither can neither can be anything without the other. By the way, that church historian I mentioned was, was yourself. I, 
I was thinking, I, I, I think I remember saying something yes. like that, but I'm not sure quite <laughs> if, if that's quite what he means. I'll, I'll just let that go. No, this is uh, in your uh, book, uh, Being Protestant and Reformation Britain, uh, where you say <laughs> that you. Uh, Christians are more than creedal statements on legs. And uh, I, I make a connection explicitly between that book and this book, because in, in that first book, which I think was published in 2013, you, you actually uh, are, are looking at wh- what it meant to be Protestant, uh, in Reformation Britain, and you start out with chapters about the emotional conditions of of life at the time, especially in the Tudor age. And I don't know anyone else who's done that. So uh, you, your use of the word emotional uh, over and over again in this first book about uh, being Protestant in Reformation Britain, there has to be a tie in your methodology and in your own thought uh, to the book that turns from uh, from believing to a focus on unbelieving. Well, I mean, as, as, as I'm arguing in, in the, the book on unbelief, I, I do think certainly in the Reformation period, and I think down to the present, belief and unbelief are, are two sides of the same coin. You know, I mean, the fact that so many people in that period and since you know, cite the, that, 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 that prayer from the gospel, you know, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Um, that that phrase has has been so resonant, I think, tells us something. Um, I when I set out to write that first book, I, I I thought I was writing a book about practices of prayer, um, and the more of the the writing about prayer and the written prayers from from that period I was reading, the more I thought I I cannot talk about you know, what people are doing in terms of places and practices of prayer before I, 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 I get in uh, without having got inside of this first um, and talking about the the emotional power um, and, and, and the emotional concerns that are actually driving this, that are making people build their lives around these these practices. And it was reading the these you know, intensely passionate accounts of of people's faith that the the um, the early Puritans, in particular, t- um, tended to write. You know, that very much people who are wanting to to live out their faith on paper um, and and give us these tremendously detailed, real time accounts of it. Um, yes, and I kept coming across these you know enormously faithful. Christians living at the the height of the the age of faith, talking about their temptations to atheism. They use that word, um, and they and, and sometimes they will be expl- explicitly say, you know, I am tempted to believe that there is no God. Um, and I think this this isn't what these people are supposed to be saying. You know, according to the standard histories, nobody is allowed to think this until the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what set me off thinking there's a story here that that hasn't been told um and in the way of things i started pulling on a thread and it turned out to be more of it there than i thought my uh, engagement with this same story uh, came as a very young man uh as a young evangelical teenager and uh, very much uh, struggling with some of the same issues and uh i i read bunyan but i didn't feel much attachment to bunyan I, I just I, I read him at some remove, uh, but it was Edwards reading Edwards. Uh, what was accessible to me as a, a teenager and uh, and then a, a young man in my twenties, and uh, and Edwards writing as a young man, where I realized he was articulating exactly what I was feeling and uh, what I was struggling with the inability to have the mastery over myself that, uh, that I thought a Christian should have, uh, the, the inability to control uh, every emotive state and uh, uh, attitude and, and, and all the rest. Edward's uh, self-examination, which is far more ruthless than I was willing to, to make myself undergo, honestly, it was uh, nonetheless real to me. And, uh, and, and then, of course, Edwards uh, also deals with, uh, with doubt, especially in his sermons. You know, he, he will address those in the congregation who may be struggling with doubt, and I think he does so with enormous pastoral skill. But uh, in, in any event, 
the, your attention to the this this emotional set of conditions is, uh, I, I think, extremely welcome. And when you unfold the argument uh, in in your book, Unbelievers, you talk about two streams of unbelief, and uh, and they are anger and anxiety. And each of them are, are, are really interesting ways of getting at what was going on in, in this period. So let's talk about those two streams, uh, because even when you talk about the stream of anger, I don't think it means exactly what someone might hear uh, at the, um, in the first round of this conversation. They, they, you, we need to unpack what you mean by anger a bit there. So let me let you tell the story. Sure. Well, I mean, both of these are stories that I've, 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 I've traced back so deep into the Middle Ages. Um, this, this goes back to before the Reformation, although it, um, I think it takes on new force after that. Um, and uh, anger, you know, in some ways I think anger is a, is a, is a very you know, appropriate um, Christian emotion a lot of the time. This is the, you know, the, the anger of, of, of Job and um, of, of, of pushing against the, the situation that in, 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 in which you find yourself protesting to God. Um, and it's often, very often, and it seems, seems to be you know, at, at the root of this, both then and now, is anger principally at the church, uh, whichever church it may happen to be. Um, churches being by their nature full of sinners. Um, and with a tendency to attract corruption to them um, in 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 every age. Uh, and the trouble is, of course, if you're going to be angry at the church, um, whether because of its corruption or because it's imposing irksome moral requirements on you, um, then. The, the the church is likely to turn around and say, but you can't be angry with, with us because we're God's representatives. Um, and then you've got the choice of either backing down and putting your hands up and admitting you were wrong, um, or of bringing God into the quarrel as well. Um, and so you find a, a lot of these cases in the 15, 14th, 15th, 16th century of people who are hauled up before the courts, accused of atheism, it's actually because they've got into a fight with a priest, um, which has got out of control, uh, and that they've found that their anger at the institution, or sometimes even just with the individual, has expanded to a point where this has, has, has led them into questioning what the, what the institution stands for. And I think we still know... Um, in our own time, the extent to which alienation from a church, even even a particular church or a particular minister, can be one of the things that drives people out of the faith. Um, that it becomes genuinely difficult to hold on to your own faith if you can no longer trust in the, the people who are supposed to be your your teachers and exemplars in it because you 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 can't recognize their moral authority anymore um and that the 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 point where i think that sort of thing can become can become really interesting um and almost almost creative is when you get to the stage where people are are holding out a higher moral vision than they feel that the church they've been raised in can can offer, and that can produce that. That's the the, the impetus that produces reformations. Um, so, when you see this sort of anger at work in in the 16th century reformers and in in in, in, in subsequent generations, when they see a, a, a church that succumbs to corruption. Um, you know, Martin Luther would say this shows not just that these particular monks and bishops have, have fallen into corruption, but that the whole theological system That's right. that allowed them to fall into corruption must itself be corrupt, um, that, that, that it's, a, it's a bad tree that produces bad fruit. 
um, and therefore we 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 need to overthrow it all and produ- and and and, and you know, pursue a a thoroughgoing reformation um, and 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 rebuild the the faith from the from the ground up, and it's that same impetus that you, you see driving a lot of, 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 of these of, of, of these reforms. There's another part of the story here that, uh, so far as I know, no one else has really told as you have, and and that is the fact that there was one specific profession uh, in the medieval world and continuing into the time of the Reformation that tended to be a harbor for let's just call it atheism or unbelief, and that was medicine. Now, there's a logic to that that makes immediate sense, but there's a story there that, again, uh, I, I'd like you to tell. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not the first person to, 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 to make this point. It's something that, that others have noticed, but I thought it was a, it was a story that was, that was worth telling here. Um, I didn't realize when I told it quite how much medical matters were going to be on all our minds as they are this Indeed. year. Um, and uh, this is is partly just uh, a matter of of intellectual genealogy that most of the practice of medicine um, in in medieval Europe in in, in you know, 16th 17th century Europe comes from the, the medical tradition comes from pagan Rome um, and Jewish and Islamic medicine are both very important Christianity as such. Um, hadn't produced a kind of strong medical tradition. So people who are trained in medicine are trained in traditions that don't really owe very much directly to to, 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 to Christianity. Um, but you've also got, you know, there, there, I think there is a, a, a real built-in tension between the the perspective of the theologian and of the physician. Um, the, the, the theologian is interested in in God's will and in conforming yourself to God's will and submitting to it and recognizing that health and sickness takes place under under providence and that the Christian's principal duty is 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 to accept it. Uh, whereas the physician is you know, by nature not terribly interested in god's will which he can't do anything always he and those days of course can't do anything to change um but in those things those natural phenomena which he is able to affect you know can he that he, that he can actually do something about and so that the, there's a a tension between the the submission to god's will that um traditional christian approaches to, to illness would would teach and of course would very much see the the christian life as being one of preparing yourself for death um and the the physician's job of of wanting to try to find things that are not under god's control but that are under his own control um and of preserving life of 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 of, of cheating death um, rather than rather than submitting to it, um, and of course that's a you know to some extent just a, a, a kind of professional tension which lots of people found ways of dealing with. Of course, there have been a great many um, you know earnestly and passionately sincere Christian doctors, um, but it's something that often comes to the to the point at the moment of serious illness. You know, if if you're if you're facing a life-threatening illness, do you submit to God's will um, and and pray for whatever the outcome might be, or do you fight uh, with with all your resources and throw everything you can and 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 bring in pagan or Jewish or Muslim um, medical methods, regardless, with the hope of staying alive? Um, the, the 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 different. You know that that second tendency has a has a tug away from conventional Christian belief in it. Yeah, in your book, you say that physicians were heirs to medieval Europe's most robustly secular intellectual tradition, and uh, later you say the physician's consulting room can join the alehouse and the gaming table. 
on our list of secularized spaces. I want to fast forward even to the 19th century, because uh, as someone who has a great interest in the history of medicine, one of the things that, that I think would be most surprising to modern people is to understand the suspicion under which physicians operated, even in 19th century London, uh, when it came to attempts to understand the body by means of autopsy, uh, dissection, uh, and such things. You know, you had the body men uh, who were, uh, and, and this is the background, of course, uh, to uh, the strange tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, you know, by uh, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. You know, it's a, uh, it's, yeah, it, it's yeah, things like the Burke and Hare cases. Uh, absolutely. And, and th- this is something that modern people would find nearly unbelievable, but uh, because when we speak of physicians, we speak of some of the most esteemed scientific uh, cultural authorities. But even in the 19th century, to say physician, you could be saying something close to that if they serve the court, but otherwise, uh, not so much. Yeah, well, and of course, a lot of the the learned and dignified medicine, you know, even late into the 19th century, um, by which stage they may have got fairly good at explaining and diagnosing disease. Treatment <laughs> still not sure. so good. Sure. Um, and you know, when when you see a, a lot of the the flourishing in the 19th century of of alternative therapies. Um, you know, of, of, of you know things like you know hydrotherapy and all the the the, the, the sorts of movements associated with with Dr. Graham and Mr. Kellogg and all those, um, sure. which we look at with you know a, a certain amount of condescension now as alternative therapies. Um, you'd you'd often be better off submitting yourself to them than whatever it was that the learned doctors at the um, official hospital might be threatening you with. Yeah, absolutely. I can remember uh, early on uh, getting to know of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones there in London. Uh, Oh, yeah. And uh, in, in all of his biographical materials, it would point out not only that he had been a physician, and, and always considered himself a physician, but that he had been a, a physician to the royal court. And uh, only uh, 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 being an American, that did not mean to me as much as it, uh, it was intended to mean, which was to say he didn't fail at medicine and then go into preaching. Uh, you know, there was a clear distinction between uh, the, the kind of physician that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was before becoming a pastor. And so I, I, in the United States, we would have our own way of conveying that. But I, I, I think that yeah. distinction still, uh, still plays into it very much. And even right now, uh, uh, study by study indicates that, that those who have a professional self-consciousness in the sciences tend to be— and this is a percentage, uh, you know, kind of survey factor, but they tend to be more open and acknowledging a skepticism, agnosticism, atheism, uh, or, uh, or, or some other variant of, of unbelief. But when you, you talk about the first stream being anger, I think we can get that. But before going on to the second stream, I want to point out that I think the shocking thing to me in reading your book from what I expected, is that the anger isn't so much at God as in theodicy as it is at the church. Uh, As I read your book, the anger is directed more towards Christianity uh, than towards towards God, but it certainly gets to that. Sure. But I I think it, it, at least in the stuff that I've read, it usually gets to it by that route, that the quarrel begins with the church. Um, whichever church it might it, it it might happen to be, one of the things that really surprised me um, as 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 I was working through this material is that I kept expecting to find your your classic theodicy type of problems, the problem of pain, the problem of evil, um, which philosophers have talked about since ancient times as you know one of the key knockdown arguments against. Right against Christianity. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very real problem, and I don't, I don't at all mean to dismiss the, 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 the agonies of people who've, who've wrestled with it. But just as a historian, it struck me how rare it was to find real instances of people who have found themselves drawn 
away from the faith by this problem. Um, the, you know, the, the, the effect of, of suffering rarely seems to be to, to, to alienate people from God, but more to, to throw, throw, throw them back onto dependence on him. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the point that C.S. Lewis made um, many years ago, uh, that all of the world's great religions were first preached um, in a world with no anesthetic or painkiller. That's right. Um, whereas we've become a, 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 an age of unbelief in a world where we've largely managed to banish that sort of, 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 of everyday suffering, at least to an extent that none of our forebears would be able to imagine. That that maybe tells us that the the classic problem of evil doesn't have the same grip on us in, in, in reality as we imagine it might. When the intelligent reader picks up a book, a major book, intending to read, we look to expect to learn more about what we know is in the book. But the greatest benefit comes often by the unexpected. It's what we did not expect to find that turns out to be the most interesting memory of and contribution of the book. Let's move to the stream of anxiety. And uh, I think uh, a lot of the intellectual class will look at anxiety and say, that sounds quintessentially modern. You demonstrate that it's not. How, how does that stream of anxiety work? Um, anxiety is, I, mean, I, I, I use it to mean the, the difficulty of holding on to a faith that, that you may want to under, under moments of pressure. Um, I talk about, um, you know, one, one, of the, one of the first examples I use um, is a case of Amalric, who was the, the king of Jerusalem, the, the Christian crusader kingdom of Jerusalem in the 12th century, um, who, when he was seriously ill, um, found himself struggling to hold on to a belief in the resurrection and, 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 and the immortality of the soul. Uh, and this sort of anxiety very often focused not so much on the, the 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 big fundamental question is there a god but on something a, a little more immediate like that um and in particular on on two issues which recur again and again and again which is can i believe in the immortality of the soul and in the hope of resurrection and can i trust that the bible is the word of god and how can I be certain of these things? How can I find a, a security that, that I can, can, can really take rest on? How can I find bedrock here to be sure that my, my house is built on rock rather than on sand? Um, and if you're unsure about that, then you know, if you're not sure what your house is built on, then, then what you do is you start digging uh, in order to find out whether there's, there's really something secure down there. Um, and before long, that process can be enormously disruptive, uh, as, as it, it means that, you know, because if, if you're going to start excavating underneath your, 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 your house of faith, then you pretty much have to tear it down and start again. Um, and so that it's, it's this sort of, of gnawing anxiety on people who, who may wish to hold on to their faith, but find themselves struggling to be able to do so this is this i think is is, is what i would say is going on in that that case of bunions that i that i mentioned a few minutes ago and of course it was a massive issue during the reformation and and you wrote uh, a, a very uh, important book uh, coinciding with the 500th anniversary of uh, of luther's uh, proverbial nailing of the uh, 95 theses to the door of the wittenberg castle church but uh, in that book, you, you don't deal as much as I thought you might have with the fact that assurance was one of the key issues of, of debate, that uh, the Roman Catholic insistence that 
a believer could have no assurance over against what both Luther and Calvin and their traditions developed as uh, as a doctrine of, of assurance. Th- that That's a crucial issue to me, because it, it points out that intersection of the emotion and the intellectual, because you don't need any more graphic illustration than Luther himself uh, to to see the cauldron of theology and desperation in one man over over the course of sure. a lifetime. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I think that medieval Catholics would say that they they did uh, they they were seeking and did find assurance, but they meant something a little bit different. That the assurance is of uh, um, of you know, it, it would be centered above all around the sacraments, um, assurance of the presence of of Christ um, in the Mass, and being able absolutely to de- to depend on 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 that as a as a physical fact, uh, whereas they they would see the, um, the 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 Protestants moving away from that and talking about um, Christ being present in the elements by faith. Um, as as dissolving the certainty which they had into um, in, 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 into something that's that's open to debate. So I think one of the ironies of this is that you've there got got two Christian parties, each of whom sees their, their own faith as the only way of holding on to this kind of certainty, and the other um as as dissolving christianity in, into this um this 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 mush of opinion uh, one of the, the the great ironies of of the reformation um is that you know the protestants in their their pursuit of uh, a a more purified faith um, have to use skepticism um and and you know Taking up the anxieties of the age around them, mixing a dollop of anger in with it, um, and and using these things as a as as a way of uh, arming, animating um, their their populations, uh, it, in order to 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 mobilise them against the the, the traditions which um, which which they'd seen um, as as needing to be overthrown. And the result is, of course, that you train an entire population in skepticism of this kind, which becomes a process that's difficult to control. I think it's important to recognize that uh, you indicate that uh, the Protestant temptation to uh, unbelief. Uh, two things I-, I want to note here. First of all, uh, very carefully, so let me go before the Protestants. Very carefully, you dissect a bit the word uh, atheist to demonstrate that when many people use the word atheist, they do not mean someone who denies belief in God, but someone who denies belief in certain doctrines. And uh, I think that's key because we can read the word atheist as meaning only one thing. And this was confusing to me at first when I wrote uh, this this book on uh, the new atheism. Now, I guess almost 20 years ago, uh, I went into the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, first of all, just to look at every use of the word, and it was clear that not every use of the word was atheist in the classic sense. So I, I think your explanation is quite helpful. When you look back at the at the origins of this, I mean, it's a Greek word originally, obviously, um, I, I think the, the early use of it would be better translated um, into modern English as godless. Um, you know, so a, a, an atheist is um, as as the term was was first popularized in the in the 16th or early 17th centuries, um, means it can mean somebody who postulates that there is no God, but it can equally mean somebody who is engaged in what you might call constructive denial of God. That is that what they claim about God is so far removed from the reality um, that what the the, the the, what they're really talking about is no longer God, but some um, some fantasy of their own invention. So it was often said that people who denied the Trinity were atheists because they had had made such a, a fundamental violation of of, of 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 God's true nature. But it also applies to those whom they called practical atheists. Right. 
Um, that is, people who live as if there were no God, even though they may claim to be believers. Um, the, 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 the modern um, atheist writer John Gray um, talks um, about people who have no use for the idea of God um as, as as a way of understanding what what, right. what an atheist might be and I, I it seems to me that that more more expansive category um what we might what might call secular rather than than atheist narrowly defined has has still got some real value to it but that raises some huge questions that you deal with uh, in, in a rather summary way at the end of your book you are not only an historian you are a churchman yourself and uh, looking to these issues. So the conditions of unbelief, and I'll use the, you, you cite Charles Taylor uh, kind of necessarily in the beginning of your book about the changed conditions of belief, that uh, a category that I found incredibly helpful in thinking through uh, not only history, but, uh, but the present moment. And uh, uh, the current conditions of belief, which seem to me to imply uh, a third category between belief and unbelief, and that is, you just referred to it as something like secular, uh, a term which I'm, I'm happy to, to receive. It's kind of people who don't believe, but they don't actively not believe. Uh, they, they are distanced under most conditions of their lives from, um, from any kind of theistic referent, at least self-consciously. So there, there's a sense in which we've arrived at a time in which two categories are not sufficient. There's, there's some new category that explains that seems to be growing in percentage of population, which is the theologically distant. Sure. And, I mean, in some ways, I, I, I think um, that, that that kind of, of, of pattern of thought is, is much more profoundly alienated um, from, from Christianity than, um, than, 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 than classic atheism. So is. true. Um, which is, is, is in many ways still still engaged with the with the issues. I mean, I, I, I think of, of of my own father who died eight years ago, um, and who was a a confirmed atheist, uh, but raised me with the um, the, 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 the precept that I had to come to my own mind on this but the one thing i could not do was neglect the question that this this yes. question of is there or is is there not a god is amongst the most important that any human being could ever face um and on that it seems to me the the the, the classic atheist and the christian are, are as one whereas the as you say this pattern of disengagement from these these issues in any sense um, is something much more profoundly difficult um, for for Christians or indeed for, for for the combative atheists to feel themselves to be such an outnumbered minority um, to, to, to to engage with and my my hunch and it's not much more than a hunch, is that a lot of, of this comes down to, to ethics. Um, that what has, it has given Christianity its, its, its cultural power and has made um, secular cultures beyond its, its scope listen to it so many times down the centuries um, has been the moral authority right. with which it's 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 been able to speak um, for various reasons, some some good, some bad. I think Christians in North America and Europe now often find it much harder to lay claim to that sort of moral authority, um, and I I would be inclined to trace a lot of the the difficulties that we face in our age back to, to back, back to that. Yeah, know, uh, someone like uh, Bertrand Russell in the early 20th century, who uh, kind of combined both of those uh, 
trajectories that you indicate. He, he made a statement, and I'm having to paraphrase it here. I've read it many, many years ago in which he said that uh, the atheists of times past basically were made uh, from the neck up, but the, uh, the atheists of the 20th, 20th century will be made from the waist down. And uh, I, I think that's, a, that's a, a rather prophetic word, actually. In, in, and in your book, you talk about Christianity now being situated in the West in a, a, a society that includes what you called a, a linked set of principles about human equality and bodily and sexual autonomy. And uh, that, that is a very different missiological context than, than Christianity has ever inhabited before. At the end of your book, you make a rather astounding argument, which has caught a, a lot of attention. And, uh, and I, I, I know what you're doing with it. I want to ask you to expand it just a bit further. You, you say that, uh, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing your argument, and uh, you, you clarify it as you see fit, but you say uh, perhaps one of the greatest signs of the eclipse of Christianity in our age is the fact that the defining individual of morality is no longer Jesus Christ as a positive example, but Adolf Hitler as a negative example. Uh, that, that's caught a lot of attention, and, and indeed it's kind of a scandalous argument. But uh, but you're right in, in the sense that in, in many parts of our society, th- there's no uh, aspirational ethic that would point to the, the standard of Jesus Christ. But instead, there's this, uh, there's this ethic of, of having to get to an Adolf Hitler before you can make a declarative moral statement. It's, it's the only fixed, generally accepted fixed point that that we've got now i think that the that you know the anti-nazi narrative um is i mean certainly in 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 this country and and i i i think to a considerable degree in the united states as well um is the only uniting national myth um that we have the point that you can assume um, if if you're engaged in some kind of civilized discourse with another human being, um, you may not know anything about their beliefs, but you can start from the assumption that that they think that that Hitler is a bad guy, um, and 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 work out from there. And if you happen to meet one of the one of the people who doesn't believe that, then you know you're talking to a monster, um, and there's no need to, and really no possibility of pursuing the. The, 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 the conversation any further and you know I mean that's in its in its own terms okay I'm perfectly happy with the judgment that Hitler was a monster um, but as you say there's a there's a problem in defining our morals by what we hate rather than 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 by what we love um, I I must say when I look at the the bitterness that has consumed so much of our of our public discourse increasingly over the past 30 years or so i i find it hard not to see this as as part of it that we're we're generally um and i, I think this applies on, on all sides uh we're we're much better at at knowing um what we want to to be rid of than what we actually want to create right um you know the 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 ways in in which we positively want to to move rather than the the the, the enemies whom 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 we want to whom we want to strike down one final issue i have to say i'm in uh, fundamental disagreement with the, uh, the the way you conclude the book uh in hope anyway let's put it this way i hope you're wrong uh but okay. uh, and i say that as a conservative confessional protestant because when I reach the end of your book, you you seem to say that the societal, the changed conditions of belief, uh, the the changed um, and transformed morality of the society around us will require Protestantism in particular to adjust to it. And uh, you don't seem to hold out much hope that Protestantism holds resources to prevent eventual capitulation uh, to to the spirit of the age. Am I reading you rightly there? Um, I, 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 you might be strengthening what I'm saying a little bit. I do think that you know the history of Protestantism is one of um, 
informing the spirit of the age, but also of learning from it. Um, that if you if you think about the the various phases of of, of moral and doctrinal development, the hard learning that that Protestants have done over the last five centuries, um, that's often been about opposing the the the, the, the great social movements of the time um, but it's also often been about about learning from learning from the age I mean the 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 you know extraordinary realization which collectively came over um, English-speaking Protestants from the late 18th through the the, the, the mid 19th century that slavery was an intolerable evil rather than simply a, a normal and rather regrettable part of everyday life, um, as Christians had, had always tended to see it. Uh, it's, I mean, that's, that's the most dramatic example of, right. of, 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 of that nowadays. Um, but there, there are other cases as well. And it seems to me that the moral insight that our age has had that Nazism represented a, a particular and peculiar set of evils, and a set of evils which Christians at the time, you know, were not as quick to recognize as they should have been, um, that that's a set of moral insights which we need to take seriously. And it, it, we, we learned some really hard-taught lessons there uh, and should not be forgetting them. There's one line in your book uh, where, where you write, the religions that will prosper in this environment uh, will be those that work with the grain of humanist ethics while finding ways to offer something that humanism cannot. Uh, and, and that's kind of consistent with the way you ended your book, Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World. So it, it's all of a piece, and, uh, and I get that. But, and, and, uh, and frankly, that kind of argument is, uh, is uh, invigorating. Uh, to a conservative confessional Protestant, it just uh, underlines the challenges that we face, and uh, and and that's actually the best part I think of uh, of the experience of reading your books. Uh, brilliant, uh, insightful. I appreciate the fact you make arguments and assertions. That uh, I appreciate the fact that you're looking at uh, what you identify as the emotional as well as the intellectual. I feel like uh, having read. Uh, your your corpus of work that uh, you, you are you are looking at human beings more as human beings need to be understood in history, and uh, so that leads me to say uh, I've got uh, a, a library of uh, Professor Alec Rowry books here on my table. Uh, what will be added to it next? What are you working on at the present? I'm starting out on a project now on the the history of Protestant missions. Um, I think there's a the, the the story that we've been told about the the missionary movement is is really that this is something that begins, um, you know, from from the from the late 18th century um, with with a few honourable forerunners um, like you know John Eliot, David Brainerd, um, William Carey. The, 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 yeah, Carey is 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 very often seen as, as as the guy who fires the starting gun on the movement, um, and I think there is a whole prehistory of of Protestant mission mission before there were missionary societies. Um, the, there's a, there's a story there that's not been told of the the profound missionary ambition that that underlay the early American colonial efforts, but that's also at work in the in the Dutch Empire of the seventeenth century, you know, the biggest Protestant empire of the age. That's right. Um, and in in, in, in in a lot of other areas as well. I'm having a load of fun with this and I'm having to, to go way outside stuff that, that, that I know anything about. But I think there's there's a significant untold story there of that that first age of of Protestantism reaching around the world and discovering what it means to try to take the faith to people of an utterly different lifestyle and, 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 and set of beliefs. Professor Ryrie, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. 
Many thanks to my guest, Professor Alec Ryrie, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than a hundred of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.